Well, when I was in seminary, I had a professor that asked a class of about 20 of us to participate in a somewhat unusual exercise. And this professor said, this is going to feel a little unusual, but you know, hang in there with me. And he was right, but it was a very eye-opening experience. He asked about 20 of us in this class to close our eyes and take about five minutes to imagine what God looks like. He asked us to take about five minutes and try and get a picture in our minds of the face of God. And there we sat in relative silence outside of the hum of the air conditioner for 20 minutes, for five minutes rather, the 20 of us in that class. And then the silence was eventually broken. The professor spoke up and he asked this question. He said, when you picture God in your mind, what is his facial expression? And one of the students raised his hand and said, when I picture God, I picture him being somewhat stern looking. He's got a serious look to him, maybe a bit stoic, sort of a blank expression on his face. Another student raised her hand and respectfully said, oh, I disagree, I see God in a very different way. She said that she saw God smiling ear to ear, warmly approving in his expression like that of a doting parent. A few moments went by and the professor asked another question. He said, when you picture God in your mind, do you picture him as being old? Or do you picture him as being young? And I think without exception, everybody in that class said that they picture God as being old. After all, he's eternal. He created the heavens and the earth. He's the ancient of days. We associate wisdom with gray hair. God and art is often portrayed as being old. So it was no surprise that everyone in the class viewed him in this particular way. But the professor said, you could just as well imagine God being young. And he made the point, God is really thinking a lot about the new when you think about how he relates to mankind in the Bible, and he's waiting for us to catch up with him instead of God catching up with us. You know, in the Psalms, it says, sing a new song unto God. God says, behold, I do a new thing. He inaugurates the new covenant through his son's blood, and he says he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And you know, it was really interesting to come away from that little exercise and just, I was struck, frankly, at you had an evangelical seminary where we all had such a shared set of beliefs about God and the Bible, Jesus being saved by grace through faith. We shared all that in common, and yet in this seminary classroom, there were all these different pictures in people's minds as to what God was like. And I think as it relates to prayer, there are three main ways in which we picture God. When we think about how does God relate to the prayers of a Christian, there's sort of three images that are really popular in the church. And this morning we're gonna see that a study of Matthew 7, 7 through 11, will show us how a right view of God changes the way in which we pray. 
So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. It will be on the screen if you don't have a device or Bible with you, though. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And to the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, they will be open. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? The first picture I believe many people in the church have as to what God is like, particularly as it relates to prayer, is that we oftentimes think about God as being a watchmaker or a clock maker. And you may say, that's bizarre. In what way do we think of God as being like a watchmaker? Well, think about it. What does a watchmaker do? What does a clockmaker do? They gather materials, they create a clock or they create a watch. They assemble it, they design it, they get it tuned and ready to go, then they wind it up, and then they become hands-off. They sort of take a few steps back and just sort of let the watch run on its own. They let the clock run on its own. They're involved in creating it. They put it together, but once it's in motion, they sort of become a bystander. They become an onlooker. They're detached from the operation of the watch or the clock. And in a similar way, I believe many people in the church view God in a similar fashion. We think about God as being the creator of the universe, but we think he's too holy or too busy or our performance is too poor for him to be involved in the affairs of our life. There's actually a word for this belief system. This belief system about God is called deism. Deism is a belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator, and listen to this, who does not intervene in the universe. So a deist is a person that believes God exists, he created everything, he set these laws in motion, and now he just sort of is a bystander watching history unfold. And this way of thinking formally was really popular in the 1700s and the 1800s, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson was an advocate of this belief system. Thomas Jefferson compiled a book that later came to be known as the Jefferson Bible, and what he did essentially is Thomas Jefferson, he took the gospels and he took the moral teachings of Jesus and he said, this is great. Love God, love your neighbor. And he kind of took all those passages in the gospels where Jesus talks about that and he left them in place. And then he simply took his scissors out and anywhere where it talked about the supernatural or the miraculous or God interacting in the affairs of our life, he just cut it out. And he orchestrated a book that later came to be known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, I can imagine there are some of you going, 
that's an interesting belief system. How on earth could anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus think of God in this way? I mean, really? There are people that are Christians, people in the church that think of God as a watchmaker who's just sort of wound everything up and now is uninvolved and detached from our lives? Well, the reality is, I think that that way of thinking about God is way more impactful in our thinking than we realize. And what I'd like to do is ask two questions to help us sort of reflect and self-diagnose as to if this vision of God as watchmaker has tainted our view of the one true God. So let's ask two questions to help us understand the extent to which this watchmaker view of God has distorted our understanding of who God is. First question, do you agree with the following statement? Prayer doesn't change God or circumstances, prayer changes me. Do you agree with that statement? Prayer, it doesn't change God, it doesn't change circumstances, prayer really just changes me. I think at first when we hear that statement, it seems spiritual and it seems attractive in a very real sense, and I think there is a kernel of truth present in that idea. I think it is certainly true that one aspect of being involved in prayer is that God uses that to prune us, to refine us, by verbalizing the thoughts that are in our hearts and minds. Sometimes when we hear what's inside there, we can kind of go, ooh, that's a bad ask, or that's really not true. So there is, there, there is this refining component to being involved in praying to God. That's certainly true. But is that all there is to prayer? Is it really something that doesn't change circumstances? Listen to what Jesus says. Again, Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus says, very simply, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and it will be found. Knock and it will be open. Jesus doesn't say if you ask, it'll be a therapeutic experience. And if you seek, you'll have this great spiritual enlightenment. And if you knock, God will just change your desires. No, for Jesus, he says that when you ask, you'll receive. One of the things I really appreciate about the book of James is that James, if you've ever read the book of James, has a way of boiling everything down into simple black and white statements. You know, if you read the New Testament, you may read the Apostle Paul, and he's gonna give you every nuance under the sun. He's gonna give you every shade of gray. He's gonna qualify every statement to just be exacting and precise and just perfect in what he's saying. But James, on the other hand, James basically boils everything down to general truths. And listen to what James says in chapter four, verse two, about the relationship between our circumstances changing and praying. James four, verse two, speaking to Christians, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen to this, he says, Christians, people at Grace Fellowship, listen to me, 
you do not have certain things because you do not ask. He says to this group of believers, he says, you're envious, you're coveting one another, you're dissatisfied with your lot in life. And he says, there are certain blessings to be had, some material, some immaterial, some spiritual, some physical, it makes no difference. James is saying there are certain blessings that you don't have in your life, not because God doesn't will it, no, we don't have it because we haven't asked. You have not because you ask not. Second question to help us see if this watchmaker view of God has sort of infiltrated our thinking is this. As followers of Jesus, do you ever pray for the supernatural or do you just pray damage control prayers? I'm gonna ask that again. As followers of Jesus, do you ever pray for the supernatural or do you just pray damage control prayers? Well, what do I mean by that? I mean, when you have an elderly relative, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a parent that receives a grim diagnosis does it ever occur to us to pray for their healing? Or rather, do we pray something like, God, your will be done, help them be made as comfortable as possible towards the end of their life? When you have a relationship with a relative or a spouse or a close friend that humanly speaking, appears to just be doomed. Do we ever pray that God would resurrect and restore that relationship? Or rather, do we pray something like, God, please help us to have a clean break? I would ask, if we are not asking for the supernatural, why not? I think the reason that we don't it's because we view God as a watchmaker. We don't really think he's going to respond, at least not in dramatic supernatural ways to our requests. James chapter five, verse 16. I love how the New Living Translation renders this. James five sixteen challenges this watchmaker view of God. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and it produces wonderful results. Is it true that prayer doesn't change circumstances? According to Jesus, he says, if you ask, you're gonna receive. And if you seek, it'll be found. If you knock, it'll be opened. And he goes so far, he's so bold in verse eight as to say, everyone who asks receives. And to the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Bold asking, bold seeking, bold knocking. That's what Jesus invites us to do. And in order to do that, we need to tear down 
this distortion in our minds of God being a watchmaker. When I think about an example of bold asking, bold seeking, and bold knocking, I cannot think of a better example than that of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. If you're someone that enjoys theology, a passage like this can keep you busy for hours. It boggles the mind theologically what's going on here. But what I want to ask us to draw our attention to is the bold asking, bold seeking, and bold knocking that is modeled by Hezekiah. 2 Kings 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Isaiah is a true prophet of God, and God sends his prophet as a messenger to this righteous king, Hezekiah, to say, this sickness that you've been battling is going to result in death. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order. You will not recover, so get your affairs in order so that you can depart. Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came back to him. Verse 5, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. It's incredible. I wonder if a prophet of God came to me saying, set your house in order, this sickness is gonna result in death. Boy, I would be awful tempted to do some damage control prayers. But God invites us to boldly ask, boldly seek, boldly knock, because he is not a watchmaker. But if he's not a watchmaker, if God is responsive to the prayers of his people, maybe he's a bit like a genie. I mean, after all, Jesus says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open. So let's disregard this watchmaker view of God and consider maybe he's like a genie where we essentially have a blank check through our prayers. We ask whatever we want, and God says yes. In fact, God's actually like better than a genie because with a genie, how many wishes do you get? Three, and we know good responsible people, when you have three wishes, what do you always wish for? More wishes, right. In this case, we don't even have to wish for more wishes because seemingly 
God has given us an infinite number of wishes. Perhaps God is like a genie or he's like a vending machine where I walk up to the vending machine, I put in the quarter of prayer, I hit the Mr. Good bar and out it comes, right? Maybe that's how this works. God's a genie. And the reality is some of the best-selling Christian authors and most popular speakers and people that hold big conferences, that's what they teach God is like. They teach God is like a genie. And if I just have enough faith, I can sit here and just like, God, give me a six-figure income. No, make that a seven-figure income. God, I'm believing you. I'm naming and claiming this, that I'm going to have a wrinkle-free life. God, drive my competitors out of business. In Jesus' name, amen. Think about how absolutely insulting that is to God. That God is some cosmic lackey. He's my gopher. He just greenlights everything I could possibly ask. Who's really the supreme being in that scenario if whatever I ask for, God just indiscriminately says yes to? Sounds like I would be the supreme being there. 1 John 5.14 shatters this misconception about God as a genie. 1 John 5.14 says this, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I'm gonna read that again. John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask for anything according to his will, God will hear us. What's John saying here? John is saying, I have this unshakable confidence that I can ask for anything. I can ask the heavens to not rain or to open up with rain like Elijah did, and God will answer yes, so long as it is in keeping with God's will. Folks, genies don't have wills. Genies don't have wills, but thank God that he is not like a genie. I know at first you were kind of hoping God was gonna be like a genie, right? Because that would be pretty great. I mean, let's be honest. Part of you are sort of disappointed right now that God is not like a genie. I mean, it seems like that would be amazing that I could just ask for anything and then God would just have to green light it. He would give us a blank check through prayer. But can I tell you something? It is extremely good news that God is not like a genie. For one thing, we as human beings are comically fickle. At least I know I am. I was reminded of this just recently, a couple Saturdays ago, before I had breakfast, it was morning time, and I knew I was gonna be going to the gym later on that day. I was gonna go to the Vint Fitness right over here. And before I had my breakfast, I thought while I was having my morning coffee, I'm gonna to put together a new playlist on Spotify for my upcoming workout. Some songs I haven't heard in a while. I kinda of wanna to put together a playlist, something to get me pumped up, to get me excited. I need all the help I can get, so started putting together this playlist through Spotify. It's about 9 a.m. Probably spent 15 minutes. What's the opening song I wanna have, you know? 
something that gets you hyped up, but it's not like you're at a climax yet with your energy, you know? It's something to kind of wake you up and get you going. What would be a good second song to build on that? And a third and a fourth. What are some songs that I haven't heard in a while that I would like to hear? What are some familiar songs that I want to be on there? And I put together, guys, this was the perfect playlist. Eat my breakfast, head to the gym, first exercise, track one, 10 seconds in, and I skip the song. I don't hear that song. Track two's on. Didn't wanna hear this song either, but this is embarrassing. I just made this playlist an hour and a half ago, so I stomached the second song, got to the third song, skipped it on the fourth one. I pulled that ripcord, I was done with that playlist, moved on to a different playlist. Why? Because Matt Saxon at 9 a.m doesn't know what Matt Saxon wants to listen to at 10.30 a.m. because I'm fickle. And my suspicion is I'm not the only one that's fickle. Listen, it's good news God doesn't say yes to everything we ask for. I mean, imagine a world where God said yes to absolutely everything someone asked for. Can you imagine a world where because some football fan kept praying that their team would win the Super Bowl year after year after, actually. <laughs> Maybe Patriots fans know something I don't know, and my theology is way off here. So just in case, let's hedge some bets. Please pray for my Carolina Panthers because they need <laughs> all the help they can possibly get in this off-season. Cam Newton's shoulder needs to heal. All right. But all joking aside, imagine a world where God said yes to everything. Think about as a Christian how that would impact the way in which you pray. I don't know about you, but if God was just gonna indiscriminately say yes to everything I would ask, let me tell you something, I would be paralyzed with fear to ever ask him for anything. It's great news that God is not some mindless genie rubber stamping every request we could possibly make. Well, if God's not a watchmaker and he's not a genie, what is he exactly? Back in Matthew chapter seven, we'll pick up in verse nine. Jesus says this, Matthew seven, nine. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. This entire passage is this big invitation to ask, seek, and knock of God. And Jesus anchors that invitation in the reality that those of us that have trusted in Christ, we are now adopted sons and daughters, and he is a good father. The way in which Jesus relates to God is that of a son to a father, because that's exactly who Jesus was. 
But because of Christ's work on our behalf, by faith, we too become adopted sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Christ in a sense, and thereby relate to God primarily as Father as well. The Lord's Prayer is a familiar prayer. But the way it came about is kind of interesting. The reason Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer is because his disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray the same way John the Baptist's disciples taught them to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. So the whole impetus for Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer was this is a teaching tool. This helps you have a model for how to pray. And if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, I would like you in just a moment to read or to say the first two words of the Lord's Prayer out loud with me. You ready? If you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, the first two words, the Lord's Prayer starts off with this. Our Father. Everything else in that prayer is predicated upon the reality that we confess our sins as a son or daughter to the Father. We make our requests known to God as a son or daughter of a good father. And when it comes to asking for good gifts from a good father, there are two truths we need to keep in mind. The first is simply this. Good fathers give good gifts to their children when they ask. Good fathers give good gifts to their children when they ask. Listen to what Jesus says again in Matthew 7, 9. He makes this argument from a lesser to a greater. Verse nine, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Mothers and fathers, although you're sinful, although you don't love your children perfectly, although you're selfish and fallen, in spite of all of that, when your son or daughter asks you for a good gift, you know how to give a good gift. So if that's true of sinful, selfish mothers and fathers, which we all are, I don't need to hear an amen from my daughter here. <laughs> How much more should we boldly ask, boldly seek, and boldly knock of the only truly good father who loves us perfectly? God as a good father gives good gifts to those who ask. See, he's not gonna play a cruel joke on us no earthly father when their child asks for bread will give him a stone. In the same way, God, when we pray for that which is good, will not prank us by giving us something useless or harmful. But if I'm being honest, this passage, this ask and you'll receive as encouraging and motivating and hopeful and beautiful as it is, there have been seasons in my life where I have asked for things and I don't felt like I got them. I've sought for things and I didn't find it. Uh, I've knocked and that does not get open. 
And this passage has felt to me, if I'm just being honest, like a cruel taunt. This passage has seemed to not square up with my experience at certain times. This passage has felt like mockery because to the best of my knowledge, there have been times where it felt, humanly speaking, like I was asking for something good, but I didn't receive it. I was seeking for something good and I didn't find it. I was knocking for something good and it wasn't opened. And it really gave me a lot of problems with this text. But then one day, a light bulb went off when I was reading verse nine. Matthew seven, verse nine. Jesus says this to the fathers in the crowd. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Why would Jesus use that illustration? Why wouldn't he say something like, which one of you, when your child asks you for bread, will not punch him in the nose? Why bread and why stone? I think the best explanation for this is that in Israel, where Jesus lived and ministered, it is a very, very stony environment. Giant stones make up that landscape in a very pronounced way. And believe it or not, a lot of those stones look like loaves of bread. This is why when Jesus has fasted and prayed to God for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, when the tempter comes to him, listen to what the tempter says in Matthew 4, 3. After Jesus fasts and prays in solitude for 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry, and the tempter comes to him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. God, why is it that I have asked you for what has seemed good and you've not made good on this promise? I think the reality is oftentimes we think we are asking God for bread, but we're actually asking him for a stone. And in the same way, no good father, when their child asks for a good gift, would give them a harmful gift. Likewise, no good father, when their child asks them for a harmful gift, would agree to do so. Oftentimes, we think we're asking for that which is good, but in reality, we're reaching for the serpent instead of the fish. Looks similar. We're reaching for the rock instead of the bread. We think it's similar looking and seems good to us, but God, being a good father, doesn't just give good gifts when we ask. He refrains from giving those things that won't profit us or are harmful. See, oftentimes we're like a toddler rummaging through the house and we get into the bathroom and we start exploring and we go in these cabinets and as a toddler we find this cylindrical orange bottle full of what we think is candy. Mom's not around and dad's not around and Eureka, I've, I've hit the mother load, right? I've got this 
container of candy and fumble around and you get that impossible top off. And then just as that little toddler is about to dump a bottle of prescription pills into their mouth, that good father walks in and says, no, sir. He picks it up. He snatches that bottle away. Why? Because he's a good father. God's not a watchmaker who's unresponsive to the prayers of his people, detached, aloof. He's not like some father that conceives a child and then is absent for the raising of the child. He's also not like a genie that just indiscriminately says yes to everything we ask. No, I'm happy to tell you today that God is neither a watchmaker or a genie, but a good father. Well, how then should we live in light of this truth? Quickly, I wanna give three ideas of how this might work itself out in our lives. First is simply this. Since God delights to give good gifts to his children, we simply need to ask. We simply need to ask. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. James says, you have not because you ask not. It's sort of the inversion of what Jesus says. And I don't know about you, but I hate the prospect of knowing that there are blessings in my life, my family's life, and my ministry that God wills for me to have that are there for the taking and the whole reason that they are not being realized in my life is because I haven't asked. I haven't in humility acknowledged my limitations and approached God as a good father. Second, when God appears to say no, I invite you to bring your complaints and disappointments to God. When God appears to say no, I invite you because God invites you to bring your complaints and disappointments to him. The book of Psalms is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and there's amazing different kinds of songs in the book of Psalms. Some are victorious, some sing of God's salvation, some are written by Moses, some are written by David. It's this beautiful collection of songs speaking of God's deliverance. But there is a huge amount of psalms that aren't celebrating God's deliverance. They're complaining and bringing disappointments to God. Themes come up again and again in the psalms, such as, God, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? God, how long do I have to wait for you to show up and deliver me like you said you would? And God in his wisdom includes that in sacred scripture to encourage us to bring our complaints to him. He already knows what we're thinking. He's big enough to handle it. And as a good father, he wants to console us in our disappointment. Finally, we should resolve to remember that God is a good father who gives good gifts when we ask, but when he says no, it's because he likewise is a good father. You know, God's not sitting up in heaven when we ask, flipping a coin, 
and saying yes sometimes and no at others. He's not detached and emotionally uninvolved and unmoved by our desires. He's a good father that says yes when we ask for good gifts and says no when we ask for that, which is harmful. It's not a genie, it's not a watchmaker. It's a good father. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of prayer. We thank you that although we often neglect it, that it's always there, that we have access to you and we can stand boldly before you because of the work of Christ, because of the merits of Christ. God, we thank you that you reassure us time and time again that you're a good father and that you invite us to come to your table and ask and seek and knock knowing that you delight to give us gifts that are good gifts. God, help us to remember your heart and the reason why you often say no, and help us when we are in those seasons of bewilderment, frustration, and disillusionment with why you are not granting our request. Help us to draw near to you, to in a sense unload on you all the disappointment, confusion, and frustration You're big enough to handle it, and you're a good father that desires to console us. God, help us to be a church that asks, seeks, and knocks because you are a good father. Amen.